Los Angeles-based, multi-instrumentalist, session musician, arranger, composer, music director, producer, DJ, conductor, and educator Miguel Atwood Ferguson has left no stone unturned in his exploration of the 21st century musical landscape. He has contributed to over 500 recordings and scores for television and film with notable musicians such as Ray Charles, Flying Lotus, Dr. Dre, and Mary J. Blige. I sat down with Miguel to discuss his dynamic career and his latest album, Le Jardin Mystique. So, uh, Miguel, welcome to Classical Chop Studio. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. Um, what we were just talking about the first time we met was like 1995. I think it was 95. So, okay, tell me then, because I know you, well, I know you as a lot of different, you know, people, but I know you as a violist first. So tell me how you went from USC, like classical violist, mm -hmm. to like working with Dr. Dre. Mm -hmm. Well, I grew up in Topanga Canyon, um, and I was, I was blessed to have parents that really appreciated music, and my dad had thousands of CDs, and so there was constantly music from all around the world being okay. played in my, you know, house. And, um, well, who my, was into the classical in your house? Both my parents. Oh, okay. Yeah, very much. Um, my mom was a special ed teacher, but adored Mozart and she got really deep into his operas and stuff, but there was music from all around the world. And so I started writing symphonic music when I was 10. And so once I heard like Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Wonder and, it was really, I think jazz was the main, and modern jazz specifically was the, the main, uh, you know, catalyst for me to get into actually playing genres of music outside of uh, classical music. So you so, started that young also doing jazz? Ex oh. Yeah, but not really until I was like 15. Okay. But that, well, that's yeah. young, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay, so you have these amazingly like open parents and so they just mm -hmm. encouraged everything that you were doing it was just there they definitely mm. were interested in me taking the classical route and oh, okay they That's weren't what they, they didn't they they never forbade me from doing things other than classical music but they thought that that was a very dangerous path to go down the and, other direction yeah i think they saw you know, playing an orchestra, being a teacher, being a chamber musician, being a soloist, all within the classical realm, being like the safe, you know, dependable path. Right. Okay. Oh my gosh. That's the dependable path. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Well, I, this is what I think is amazing is that I think the dependable path is that you're op able to do all of that, right? I couldn't agree more. That's kind of the irony. Yes. That's that's yeah. why I wanted to have you on, because I wanted to just like talk about how you allow all of this to happen. Mm. And did you ever have to worry? Were you ever worried how it would be received? Or yeah, like, still really? Yeah, oh yeah, know, yeah, yeah. You know, it's. Um, I think a lot of it for me just comes also from. Um, not having like more social skills, not being a more oh, ma on. mature person. What? You don't have social skills? Are I, you have, kidding I, me? I have plenty of social skills, but I mean, I think if I was more mature, I could succeed in more realms. But um, 
I like to have too much fun. Like if, you know, if there's um, people power tripping around me, like I'll give them a hard time. And right. like, I don't like bullies don't, and, right, right. you know, like I think we're all equal. Like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like a hippie person. I think we're all like absolutely amazing. I think we all, you know, like Bob Marley says, we all have the answer. Like I really think that. And, oh. you know, and if, you know, if there's any, you know, being around different egos, sometimes people are power tripping and like... I've never I've been a- around anyone's <laughs> ego in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? People have egos here? So, Well, part yeah. of the problem I've noticed is that, for me at least, I see that um, everyone's very compartmentalized. Uh, so it's hard to keep all yeah. these balls in the air, right? Yeah. Where you're, is that, have you noticed that as well? Uh, Where it's like one day you do one thing and then everyone's kind of like comfortable with that. And the next day you're like, oh no, but yeah. I do this. Yeah, well, you know, I'm still working on my first album and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it being out in the world for so many different reasons. One of them being is that I, I mean, I could just be completely fooling myself, but I have this, this notion that once it's out there, there'll be a testament that actually shows the different things that I do. Because I, right. I don't think there's many people that actually understand me or know what I actually do. They Because I wear different hats. Mm-hmm. And I love these different hats. Um, but there's no like one project that actually like encompasses, you know, encompasses everything all that yeah. you are. So this is, okay, this, your album's coming out in 2018. It's called Les Jardins Mystiques. 2019 right? now. Oh, whoops. <laughs> okay, Still working we'll on it. <laughs> Okay, so tell me a little bit about it, and is it yeah. con- it's conceptual, or that's the yes. concept, obviously. Yeah, yes. yeah, um, the mystical gardens, and um, I have it down from five hundred hours. Oh my god! To forty six hours currently, and it's going to be uh, a so, two fifty minute CD on the Brain Feeder record label. In okay, LA. yeah, I wanted to ask you about Brain Feeder as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you give us a little bit of a taste of? I mean, you kind of already are, but like, how will the album progress? Where yeah. does it start? Yeah. Um, well, the concept is that each track is a walk through a different mystical garden. Okay. You know, um, I think that everyone's valid. All these walks of life are all valid and really just make life so much more beautiful. And I, I think we need all of each other's perspectives. And I think we have so much to learn from one another. And I appreciate all the different cultures we come from. And and that's really what this album is, is representing. So I want to give people good energy to and confidence to continue digging into the reality of their lives. Right. And so there's a lot of diversity on the album. Um, as of right now, there's no singing, but there probably will be some singing. Some tracks will just be one instrument. Others will be orchestral. Uh, different genres of music, mostly jazz, hip-hop, and, and classical genres. But yesterday I was recording with this amazing oud player, and oh, that's, nice. that's going to go on the album. So it's pretty diverse. It's not, I wouldn't say it's schizophrenic. It's not schizophrenic, <laughs> but it's diverse. Okay. All right. So um, two CDs, 10 hours each? No, 50 minutes CDs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't make any yeah. sense. Okay, we have yeah. to edit that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that'll be out in 2019. Yes. And so tell me about um, the Brain Feeder. It's, mm-hmm. kind of, it's, it's a collective, right? I think that's a better way to describe it. Yeah, it's a collective and... They just celebrated 10 years, uh, and there was a release that came out uh, maybe even this month, but I guess it was last month, was a 10-year retrospective. Right, it was the Roman numeral. Yeah. Yeah, I know I was listening to it. Yeah, and I decided, there's not that many labels reaching out to me. There's been a handful of labels reaching out to me, though, asking to you know make music on their 
label. And I decided to go with Brain Feeder because I have a lot of friends on that label mm. and they're LA and they represent creativity uh, to me. And I really appreciate that. And I want to support that. And there's no one like me on the label as well. So I thought I could exist on this label and um, have something to say. Can you enlighten our listeners about this kind of the process of getting an album out and dealing with record companies? Wow. Uh, <laughs> or should we say that for the second <laughs> Yeah, I could just say... I mean, what have you, you learned from what you're experiencing? Yeah, well, everyone might tell you something different. So no one, I mean, with most of these beautiful subjects we're talking about, there's no authority. Re- learn how to continue to respect yourself, which I think is an infinite thing and it's an ongoing thing. And use your and, gut too, right? Sitting up? Like use your gut. Yes, yeah. I'm, I think that's really the number one thing is really learn how to gauge your intuition and intuition is an infinite thing as, <laughs> as you know so there's oh it's very co- confusing there's all these different layers to it so but respect it it might be the best thing we have it's, it's right. one of the greatest things we have so yeah in in just in music in general with commerce just you know learn how to really value yourself learn how to take care of yourself nurture your your craft and you know, confidence is not arrogance. They're the two different things. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of image uh, related to the different realms of what we're doing. And that's fine for, for somebody to be that has an image or whatever, but let's not get that confused with the substance of their craft, you right. know? So let's learn to um, get in touch with our identity, which I hope is in, is infinite, you know, meaning that it's it's not just finite. It's not just... A, B, C, D. There's a lot more sides to us that we're not even aware of yet. So it's complex. And it, it's, it, I think it's a blessing that there's, there's more to delve into and to develop. And so my point is if, if we have like a daily, it doesn't have to be a regimen, but if we have uh, a propulsion to try to get into that on a daily basis and to uncover uh, that combined with learning how to respect ourselves, then I think we're less uh, prone to people taking advantage of us um, unknowingly and knowingly. Right. And uh, it, it's very easy to, to get um, eaten up and swallowed up in uh, the quote-unquote music industry, which is always changing. Right. You know? I'm, it's like this like meat grinder. It is a meat <laughs> grinder. <laughs> it really is. And, I mean, I'm definitely fooling myself by saying this. I, I don't concern myself in the music industry. Mm, I like that. It's just... Something I tell myself that that helps me. The, what I tr- try to do is just try to be the best version of myself. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I'm in the music industry, but the music industry, I mean, there will be t- people that, like I say, will be an authority or they consider themselves authority and they they take themselves very seriously and they'll tell you what they think the music industry is. And there might be a lot of truth in what they say, but I think the truth of the quote-unquote music industry is that it's um, it's constantly shifting. It's... It's uh, it's global now. Actually, there's music out in space too. Yeah, right. You know, so it's it's not just global, but it's it's constantly shifting, and there's there's all these trends. And trends and fads are very dangerous. They're they're powerful too. Mm-hmm. But um, I think you get my drift. As long as we're getting in touch with something that's bigger than shifting sands, and you know, we were talking about Brahms earlier. Brahms referred to his compositions or his. He would he say he wanted to have his his compositions be an impenetrable ship. 
That, those were the words okay. that he used. Well, this goes back to what yeah. we were just talking about. Yeah. And so, you know, I, yeah, I'm trying to make my life like that. And, right. You know, my craft like that. And how do you do that? You're true to yourself, right? Trying to be, and which is infinite. So that's that's the thing. It's like there's always more to uncover. It's like a, it's like an onion with infinite oh my God. layers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and onions make you cry. <laughs> <laughs> No, I've, I've been, yeah, okay, we'll talk. Uh, let's see. So, um, how did you get to that place? I mean, mm. did you have some, I mean, you have to have some uncomfortable experiences, right? Yeah. Not that well, you have to talk about them, but. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm an open book. What I, started I, to make you think, okay, I've got to go for something deeper here, or something yeah. more meaning? Well, um, I, I think just struggle and just realizing that talent, you know, to whatever talent, like we're, we're born with i mean it's really it almost doesn't matter i mean it obviously it does matter to to some degree i don't know to what degree but it's really our work ethic and um i started learning that if i could actually be a service to the people around me then there's more of a need for me as well and so trying to marry that with what's actually fun for me I like so, that. That's great. Yeah, it's really, that's, I really offer that to people. That really continues to serve me. So, you know, I try to empower people and I think fun is underrated. Like, you know, reckless fun can be fun too, but I mean, healthy, wholesome fun. And I think that part of our passion that's actually fun for us to work on, uh, I think there's great power there and it's, a, it's attached to something that goes very deep. But uh, to answer your question, I think it was just realizing that I'm not promised anything. Mm. And, you know, there's just so many talented, amazingly talented people out there, genius people that are just struggling on the day-to-day in in a number of ways. And so just to realize that, yeah, okay, I'm not promised anything. I'm not entitled to anything. And if I'm going to have a shot at being um, somewhat successful or somewhat happy... Uh, I really have to have a game plan, and hmm. there there has to be a reason, which is like a survival plan. Yes, really. yeah, right. yeah. So I'm I'm constantly diving back into that, right? Um, but yeah, being of service and trying to concentrate on on my health and people's health, you know, on a, like an emotional level and spiritual level, and trying to feed that, that's helping me. So you're doing that. I saw on your website that you like travel around the world and do these kind of motivational talks. Is that what you do? Is that what they are? Not as many as I would like, oh. but yeah, I'm doing it more and more. And my mom passed away in 2016. And as a way of kind of like helping me grieve, I started teaching for free. And so I do a lot of Skype uh, and people come over to my apartment. And I, um, yeah, I teach people to orchestration and violin, viola, and improvisation. But people gravitate to me more on the the life level of just how to be a functioning human being, a happy human being in the arts. And I'm honored that people open up to me and want to talk to me about that stuff. I think it's so important. I think that's the harder stuff, that the art itself obviously is difficult, but that's kind of the easy part. You know, even, like I say, the people that are very talented. They're not in guaranteed to make a living. Right. So, um, yes, I do um, give workshops, and you can say they're motivational talks. Um, they're more, more just like music wor- workshops. And, uh, yes, I, I do that around the world. I really love it, and I want to do it a, a lot you, more. You must be meeting some incredible people. I think everyone's amazing. <laughs> yeah, like I was— Well, uh, yeah, they are. But yeah, they're not just, all allowing that through. 
That's very true. <laughs> That's very true. So, yeah, it's it's awesome. You know, it's we all have so much in common around the world, but as as you know from the travels and the people that you meet, each culture and each generation has its own special things and things that they hold that they really value and So where was like one place you went where you were like shocked by I don't know, the authenticity of the people in general? Or mm. was there one specific place? Well, um, I just went to Israel twice. Um, it was my first time going to the Middle East, anywhere close um, to there. Wasn't that where authenticity and... was like, <laughs> created? <laughs> There's a strong argument for that. Um, and I was really just mesmerized by like the palpable magic in the air. Mm. I guess it's fair to say that every place has its own energetic vibe but the people specifically were just very well balanced hmm. and i was i was very moved by how authentic they were and how confident they were but not arrogant okay you know i like i, I mean that's interesting yeah. that you say balanced because i think the media portrays that yeah. area as just like completely unstable and ready to just yeah so but it wasn't well, when you got there well, I think maybe it's fair to say both are true. And, oh. you know, I've I spent now a total of two weeks there. In, so, okay. You know, I spent a week in Tel Aviv and a week in Jerusalem. And I was really trying to go to uh, East Jerusalem and, and to Palestine, but I had to come back here to do some work. Um, and I look forward to going to surrounding countries. But I know I think that is true that there's, you know, huge instability. But Maybe it's also because of that, that the people there, so that they can try to have some type of inner peace, they have um, a lot of stability emotionally right. in, in a lot of ways. Just to live in such yeah. close proximity with, yeah. with such a diverse yeah. community, right? Yeah, but I, I, I really was impressed with the people there. And what, what, were they, like, what was the music scene like in Jerusalem? Well, I was told that specifically in Jerusalem, I was told that right now there's this uh, noise scene oh going my gosh. on. Yeah, wow. so kind of, kind of on the avant-garde. Um, I want to say the word grunge, but that's not the right word. But no noise, noise, yeah, noise. And um, I didn't actually see a lot of that, <laughs> um, but I heard about it. Okay, all right. So then, um, tell me how your Buddhist practice. Uh, figures into the to yeah i was 18 a freshman at usc and wait you found buddhism at usc as a freshman yes oh my god this is amazing (laughs) yeah so (laughs) in high school I i went to crossroads and i was having a great time playing on the baseball team and playing bass in the jazz band and writing music for the string orchestra and it was uh it was kind of difficult for me socially. I didn't re- relate to a lot of the kids there, but you know, musically, it was amazing, and I got to had this ama- these amazing outlets. And around that time, I got really deep into modern jazz, and so John Coltrane, Art Blakey, and specifically Wayne Shorter and and Herbie Hancock. So Herbie and Wayne have been practicing the spiritual practice that I practice. They've been practicing for close to 50 years and I was such a massive fan of both of them just on every level and I'm like okay well if this is working for them let me just like (laughs) check this out and at least check it out yeah and 
but it was really my my like emotional um, struggles that led me to that because you know if if we feel like our life is you know working like as it is then we're not going to really I think be seeking you know but I I had a mental breakdown um, when I was a freshman at, at USC it wasn't like a huge one but it was. Definitely a mental breakdown. Um, so you pulled yourself back from the brink. It, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was. Uh, well, what? It was, what caused it was real. this? I think it was a combination of too much partying and uh. not enough sleep, and <laughs> yeah, just not taking care of myself and the the pressures of the just everything really right then having to perform yeah. at such a high level yeah yeah and um so it was really crashing down of everything and i think there's understandably a stigma with with mental breakdowns like you know i don't think we really understand them and so you know we tend to fear things we don't understand and it was really a positive thing for me you know i basically just had to kind of figure it out myself um and i was just having a having a hard time and um kind of had to just take care of myself like I I was telling people what I was going through and people didn't really take me seriously right they couldn't relate to that they couldn't relate to that and I guess I didn't really seem like I was doing that badly so people had a hard time really understanding that I was really having a hard time and I was taking a jazz improv improv class at USC and the pianist has the same spiritual practice and I just love this guy. He was definitely kind of nuts, um, but he wore his he, his heart on his sleeve, and I just really that melted me. And um, you know, I lo- you know I love people with heart energy and just you know they're they're passionate people. And he was, he was a really sweet guy. Um, he, he had an anger issue, but he was just kind of it was all based upon sweetness, actually. You know, um, just very. Very nice guy, and we hit it off, and so he was the first person to share the the practice with me, and I just fell in love with it. I just I just dove in, and so yeah. Tell us about the practice. Yeah, so you know, like I say, I was very uh, you know unstable at the at the time. So one thing that I think can help a lot of I mean, we can help anybody, but especially somebody that has some stability issues, you know, having some type of regimen uh, really helped me. So my Buddhist practice is it's Nichiren Daishonin Buddhism. Um, it was created in the 13th century in, in Japan, and it's um, based um, upon the Lotus Sutra, which is the, the last teaching um, that the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, taught the last eight years of his life. Um, Shakyamuni Buddha lived in India 2,500 years ago, um, and he was an actual prince, and... When he was 19, that was the first time that he actually went outside the... Supposedly, this is historically true. It wasn't until he was 19 that he actually went outside the the palace gates. And upon doing so, he saw dead people and just saw, you know, like normal life at that time. And... That he was sheltered from. He was completely sheltered from. And that, you know, his, his family wanted to continue sheltering him from. And he saw life and he realized that he needed to go in that direction that he was more attracted to be more aware than being sheltered and so he did and he left princely life and he basically went out into the forest and tried a series of meditational practices for the next uh, 16 years 
and the Bodhi tree, which is an actual tree in India, uh, supposedly was where he had a great epiphany. Um, people call that, uh, he had his historical enlightenment, uh, there when he was 35. And then for the next 45 years, he basically went around just helping people and just preaching. And his teachings were later comprised into what they call sutras. The last eight years of his life, uh, his teachings were compiled into what they call the Lotus Sutra. And basically just says that we're all equal and we can attain our enlightenment in this lifetime. That's basically what it just says. Um, and and you access that through chanting, right? Yes, that's, that's like... Um, that's the practice. That's a major part of the practice is the, the chanting of Nam Yoho Renge Kyo and the recitation of parts of that... Uh, sutra, and then there's just tons of incredibly empowering uh, teachings. And so being a kind of crazy, wild 18, 19-year-old, not really fitting into pop culture or just, you know, like I've, I never really wanted to be popular or just a lot of the things I found that pop culture values I, I, I've never really related to. And so the timing was perfect, and it just really helped me break through some serious depression issues, and it gave me some tools to learn how to really be accountable, because I think that's... Yeah, uh, accountable for your actions. E- yeah, so, and dreams. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. You create your own reality, so, right? Yes, and <laughs> and and then, you know, I think that's that's one thing, but then to learn how to take responsibility for the things that are in our heart... That's uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful journey, and it makes sense that we all relate to different things and different. I feel like like it also makes sense that that's why we kind of numb. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. That amazing stuff in our heart, and it's like easy to just kind of drink. Yeah. Drink it away and just yeah or whatever whatever the vice is. Yeah. Completely. So then, okay, when you started this practice at eighteen, did you ever have a wobble with it, or you were just on it. I was just on wow. it. Wow. Yeah, because it was it helped me that much. Like I was I was really suffering. And, you know, it was free. And you're you're basically you're basically just like writing down your dreams and then, you know, cause and effect is, is part of, of the the practice. So you think about different causes you can make to manifest the things that you want to manifest basically. And so it was just like a nuts and bolts way of of me being able to, like I say, take responsibility for the things I had on my plate that I wasn't really knowing how to take responsibility for. And you um, saw results. I saw results right away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it worked for me. You know, to each their own. Um, it makes sense that we all relate to different paths, and as we should. You know, we're, we all have so much in common, but we all have, like, such different lineages and karma and it, it makes sense, but I lucked out, and to this day, you know, I still practice. It still works for you. I love it. So what is yeah. your daily practice? You wake up and, and you chant? Yeah, yeah, I chant, yeah. And, um, yeah, just write down my, my dreams. And the chanting is like, it's a form of prayer. So it's 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 a form of meditation. And it's this, like, focusing mechanism too, right? Yeah. Clears your mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes, like, I just chant, and I don't necessarily guide myself to think about and you know necessarily pray for one person or myself or something that just it's just like connecting with the the universe or the god whatever you want to say 
And then other times now I'm, I'm like really kind of like almost like battling for my life, like focusing on something <laughs> and it's like vowing to, you know, have a breakthrough in a certain um, arena or something like that. That's, a, that's beautiful. I wanted to talk about, I watched, I watched on YouTube, I love this suite that you wrote for Ma Dukes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so you're performing that, that was a couple years ago. Are you still doing the tour? Yeah, so it was a one-time concert um, in 2009 uh, here in L.A., and we had a 60-piece orchestra, and Jay Dilla is a very celebrated hip-hop producer that died in, I believe, 2006, and he's from Detroit, and um, he was really young when he passed away. He was, like, 32 years old and uh, died from, like, lupus-related uh, things, and he um, was just a super passionate, transcendent producer um, studying music from all around the world, and taking music from all around the world and making these beautiful kind of Debussy-esque hip-hop productions. And he was just really into being in his laboratory and always just like getting better and just, you know, even when he was nominated for a Grammy, he didn't even want to go to the Grammys. He just wanted to stay at home and work on music. You know, there's nothing wrong with the Grammys, but my point is that, you know, he was really dedicated to his craft and didn't really care about the commerce aspect of it. And especially since his music is so transcendent, what he was influenced from and pulling from was so diverse, it's perfect for someone like me to then flip and translate to an orchestra and then continue to take it to different places. So I wasn't necessarily replicating what he did. I was uh, re-exploring it and reinterpreting it. Remixing it, I guess? Yeah. The orchestra, yeah. Yes. Perfect uh, well, What I love about your aesthetic is that while I was watching it, there, I wouldn't say it's crossover mm. because, right? Like, there's something about your aesthetic. You kind of skirt the lines mm. so that you don't really ever have. Mm. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Wow. That's that's a beautiful. It's supposed to be a compliment. That's a beautiful compliment. I really appreciate that. Well, you know, I come from diversity, and so it's it's interesting. Our identity isn't necessarily our cultural, ethnic background mm. or makeup. Right. I got into a very interesting conversation. Actually, across the street at one of these comedy clubs, one of the oh, comedians started picking me apart. It was <laughs> he pulled like out of the oh crowd. Oh my gosh! Um, well, he saw me and he, and he yeah he just he looked at me. He's like, "What are you?" And I'm like, "You mean like my like ethnic background?" I'm like, "Well." And I knew what I was getting into. I was trying to give him some material because I think that's one of the most difficult professions, being a comedian. My heart goes out to them. So I was trying to give him some material, but I got picked on for the next three hours. I could have <gasps> left, but I'm like, okay, well, I, I just did a DNA test. <laughs> so I started there. And yeah, the, the DNA test said I'm 29% West African and basically the rest like uh, European. You know, 11%, you know, Finnish and English, Irish. I'm kind of a mutt. So, you know, that's my, you know, ethnic makeup. So, but to, to answer, you know, your, your question with the, you know, the cultural thing or the crossover is the word you said. I, I'm not trying to do one thing I I other that's than... That's why this works. Yeah, I'm just trying to be me. And I, I, f I find that the truth or our authenticity is really magical and beautiful. And like I was saying earlier, it's not just finite, you know, so it's, um, it really is infinite. It's just uh, up to us to just continue. It's an infinite invitation to keep on exploring it. And I, I have a feeling that everything that we want 
deepest, um, other than like the superficial, is actually connected to that. You know, like what we're actually like yearning for, perhaps. And so the same artistically and musically speaking. So we get so caught up yeah. on the labels and the yeah, right? yeah, big time. Understandably so. You know, maybe you know maybe labels can be like a very uh, superficial starting point. But then we, you know, we it really is so behooving to get past labels and to realize that you know, as completely corny as it sounds, there's never been one of us before. You know, we're. So, um, specifically with that project, because he's a very famous hip-hop producer, there's a lot of people trying to replicate what he did. And so, thankfully, me and the people I was lucky enough to be doing that project with, we realized, you know, let's kind of not necessarily set ourselves apart, but let's do something unique by not necessarily trying to replicate, but just celebrate what would be the the most uh, fun celebration of this great hip-hop producer's music that we could do? Yeah. What does that look like? And then that's what that project was. Because yeah, your orchestra... Well, I want to talk about your orchestration, too, but the the suite in the, the re, quote-unquote remix, mm-hmm. it really, I don't know, it just brought out another dimension of his music instead of saying, you. here's, you know, here's his music and here's yeah. what it would sound like if Debussy, you know. Right. It was different. Thank you. That's so, what we're going for. Good. Oh, great. So, Tommy... Where do you get? Where did you get your orchestration skills? Because everything I listened to, it was, it's fascinating. The uh, command of the orchestra, oh, even if it's a well, small ensemble, especially your ensemble, I thought it was just magnificently orchestrated. So, oh, thanks. Well, that means a lot coming from you. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I'm. Did you actively work on it? I put 700 hours into that <laughs> first concert. Yeah. Yeah. I was. I had like okay. 22 hour days, and yeah, I'm just desperately trying to make good music. And I'm not impressed with myself. And so I'm now I'm at a good place where I at least have enough, you know, confidence where I'm not like falling to pieces or something on on like a weekly, monthly or daily level or something. But, you know, that's a that's a great feeling though, to to feel that hunger to like wanna just seek greater clarity in in our craft and it's 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 a very nice feeling, but yeah, I worked so so hard on that, and it's constantly evolving. So now, when I do it around the world, uh, we're doing new songs, and it's, it's completely different now. There's a lot of improvisation in, involved, and to, you know, to do a sixty piece orchestra around the world, you have to be pretty balling, and I'm not that balling yet. So oh. I'm either doing a fourteen piece version of it. Or a thirty-piece version of it. So in South Africa, I was lucky enough to bring fourteen people, um, all the way from New York and LA. In Tel Aviv, I did a thirty-piece orchestra. Um, I didn't travel with every anyone. Everyone was from there. We worked with the Israeli chamber orchestra and local jazz musicians um, at Lincoln Center. Uh, we traveled with like maybe six or seven people from LA. Then everyone else was in New York. So. It's like a you know thirty piece when we uh, expand it, so it it's it has its own life. So give me a little bit of like a, tell me a little bit about your process. So you, you have a song, whatever that you're going to orchestrate or mm-hmm. remix. So what do you do first? Mm-hmm. And I how think, does the orchestration? Yeah. How does it come to you? Yeah, well. John Coltrane's pianist, the great McCoy Tyner, uh, who's still alive uh, right now and towards the end of his life, he says that the more time we spend with a song, the more we become friends with it. And kind of along the lines of that, I tried to establish a relationship with the song. And, you know, what is it? I make a lot of my living putting orchestras and myself on people's tracks. And 
you know, it's really, I feel like the, the, there's the narrative of the lyrics, there's the narrative of the various instruments that are playing, and, you know, depending on the depth of what's being created, it, there's a narrative there. It's, right. not, it's, not just, it's not just candy, you know. There's, <laughs> there's, uh, there's nothing wrong with candy. The music, at least I'm most interested in being a part of, is, is not disposable. You know, it's something that we can enjoy again and again, and gain insight into our own life and and into life itself and come away with goodies every time we spend some time with a piece of music or and a work of art. And so when I arrange, I am basically just dissecting it into as many different pieces as I can that I can wrap my brain and soul around. And I just try to ask myself, okay, what... What are some of the unique things about this piece? You know, like what are some of the instruments? You know, is there a bass on on the track? You know, usually there is. Um, are there? Where are the instruments from? Are those instruments being played in a traditional way? Anything and everything. Curiosity. Yes, and just wrapping my head around it in a way, not to belittle it, but literally the opposite. You know, and so if I'm going to. Uh, reinterpret something and arrange it, I really try to stay away from um, recreating it because that's just not really what I like to do. I'm, I'm trying to reinterpret it. Right. And, well, then it's not really yeah. you, it's, right? If yeah. It's, you know, this, you know uh, context is basically it. So just hopefully the context is where I get to re-explore it and to celebrate it in a new realm like you were nice enough to say I was with this uh, Sweet Vermont Dukes project. And so then, basically, authenticity, I feel like, always wins. So what does authenticity mean in whatever context I find myself in? That's, that's really where it's at. I don't, I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, yeah, totally. But it seems like it's really speaking to, especially the hip-hop artists, mm. right? Because they're probably lis- they're listening to your orchestration and arrangement, and they're, they're feeling something new come through. Yeah. Well, that's really cool you say that. Um, Specifically with that project, Sweet For My Dukes, it, it was really empowering, and I didn't foresee this, but this has been an, an ongoing part of the, the, the narrative of that project, is that it's been a very empowering thing for a lot of people that were either intimidated by the symphonic orchestra or didn't relate to the symphonic culture, um, uh, orchestra culturally. And so then here is this person that was essentially seeing the validity of quote-unquote hip-hop music and European classical music and just seeing it equally as wondrous. And that empowered so many people. And I was told that, uh, for instance, the, the night of February 22nd, 2009, when we had that Sweet Vermont Dukes uh, concert at Cal State LA, I was told there was a lot of really big thuggish dudes after the concert, crying. And that just made me feel like on cloud nine. Yeah. I, I just felt so proud of that. I think uh, it's beautiful wherever we come from. I think it's equally beautiful. And it's, it's more about what are we doing with it? Where are we going? Mm-hmm. What's the intent? Yeah, intent is so powerful. So that was, yeah, you're, you, you, you're hitting a lot of bullseyes. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's... it's it's, uh, I wouldn't say glorifying something, but it's just celebrating. It's, it's celebrating something. Now you, do you produce as well? Yeah. It seems like yeah. you would be mm-hmm. perfect to just kind of control the entire creative process. Oh. I guess that'll be your album. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah and um, I was sitting down playing some chunks of my album for the, 
the label owner um, Flying Lotus the other day, and he was asking, would it be down to produce more for the label? I'm like, yeah, that's fun. Well, you're amazing. That's be true. You're amazing. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. <laughs> We're going to have to disagree about this completely. <laughs> okay, let's see. Tell me about um, the Miguel Atwood Ferguson Ensemble. Yeah, that's basically... Like any group that's playing my music <laughs> under my direction, so I, love it. I have a. I just played in Jerusalem last week at, for the Jerusalem Jazz Festival, and it was a five piece. Okay, I was all, gonna say what it was of all name? musicians living out there, and we called it the Miguel Hatwood Ferguson <laughs> Ensemble. I'm playing next here in LA, January 18th, at one of our beloved spots, the Blue Whale. That's going to be the Miguel Atwood Ferguson <laughs> Ensemble, and that's going to be a an eight-piece nice. uh, uh, with harp. I'm so excited. I'm really, I, was I can really tell too, you like harp. I love harp. Your harp uh, writing is great. Oh my gosh! Please teach me. I got. I need a, another. I need a composition no, lesson from no, you. No, you don't. Not for me. Um, yeah, I'm even thinking about having two harps. Uh, oh next my time. gosh. Yeah, I love it. Didn't Bernard Herrmann use eight harps on some of his scores? Uh, that's a good question. I think at least on one of them he had eight. Well, why don't you just go for eight? <laughs> nine. <laughs> just it could only be harps. Ooh, <clears throat> I've got some great. ideas for you. I'll, I'll okay. yeah, give you some repertoire ideas. Please. Um, so okay, so that's uh, the Ferguson Ensemble. Yeah, and then I have a string quartet, Quartetto Fantastico. Right. That name is definitely tongue-in-cheek. You know, we're all classically <laughs> trained. Uh, we specialize in just uh, doing I- improvisation. But I think, I don't know if anyone even understands that that title is supposed to be a joke. I think people do. Yeah. Because we're all jokesters, but that's a very fun ensemble that I originally put together for Dr. Dre. And we just loved playing together so much. We just kept on playing together, and here we are, twelve years later. What's he like? Um, he has been through a lot of changes. So right now, he's I'm, I'm almost inclined to say he's like a teddy bear. I mean, he's just a really nice person, and he's really just trying to keep things um, nice and easy and breezy. And um, let's see, last time I worked with him was a couple months ago, and, you know, he's being put through the ringer. He was going to court every day because I guess his beats by Dre is getting sued. Or, oh, yeah. I, saw I don't know that. why. So he was just happy to be in the studio. But, you know, he grew up around a lot of violence, and he has a completely different lifestyle now, and he's in his 50s, and he's concentrating on being a family man. So I think he's just been just focusing on change, positive change. The, Does he the, like a like diverse array of music? I can imagine he would. I, um, I'm not... Or you don't know. I don't know him close enough, but what I have heard is that, yes, definitely. I watched that Quincy Jones documentary. Yeah. It was amazing, like, just the scope yeah. of his... Yeah. Like, he's talking about Berg. Yeah. You think, wait, what? Uh, yeah. And Nadia Boulogne. Yeah, Boulogne. right. Yeah. Unbelievable. He studied with her, right? It was. Did he study with her? I think he might have in the fifties. Yeah. Paris. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. One other thing I want to talk to you about is Carlos Nino. Yeah. I loved that album. So fill the heart shaped. Oh yeah. Crap. Yeah. So tell me about your collaboration with him. Well, Carlos Nino essentially has been my best friend the last uh, almost fifteen years. Uh, he has been my biggest bridge. He's been my biggest supporter. He's been a, a mentor of sorts. So 
when I graduated USC, um, I went to USC here in Los Angeles getting a, a bachelor's uh, in classical viola. And I graduated in 2003. And around that time, I linked up with now my great friend Carlos Nino, who had a wonderful show on KPFK 90.7 for 20 or 25 years. And he's a great creative uh, producer and He's like an unofficial educator to so many people in our community here in L.A. And he's a very supportive person. And he's been this, my my number one ally and, like I say, educator in bridging various gaps in my understanding of, like, music and the music, quote-unquote, industry. And he, he's just so passionate about the the history of, of of great creative musicians and it was really fun for him to kind of take me under his wing because I was so open and wanting to learn about these wonderful artists and he's a great producer and now he's an amazing um, performing per, um, percussionist like a colorist um, but at the time he wasn't really playing many instruments and so here I am a multi instrumentalist and so it was a perfect pairing he needed someone like me that actually knows theory and can play these different instruments. And he's a great producer and has a very keen ear and sense of how to put things together. And so it's just been a wonderful pairing. And so it was his idea, for instance, uh, to actually come up with that Sweet Vermont Dukes project. And I'm the one that did it, but it was essentially uh, his idea to, to do it. Okay, Miguel, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's an honor. (laughs) Nice to see you. 